Welcome to The Last Full Measure with Carter McNish, a show dedicated to telling the stories of our nation's greatest battles where Hillsdalians played a part. In this episode, we cover the dramatic first Battle of Grant's Overland campaign, the Battle of the Wilderness. If you would like to follow along with today's episode using helpful visual aids such as maps and pictures of the battlefields, then check out our Instagram page at lastfullmeasure101.7fm. May, 1864. General Ulysses S. Grant, commander of all Union forces, camps with the Army of the Potomac north of the Rappahannock River, poised to strike deep into the heart of the Confederacy. Unlike his predecessors, his objective is not a location, but a group, to destroy the Army of Northern Virginia. I will write a few lines as I fear I will not have an opportunity very soon again. We are in camp about 14 miles from the Rapidan River and expect any moment to hear the bugle sound the march. The enemy are in heavy force on the other side of the river. The banks are lined with artillery, and a great battle is to begin. Asher Lafleur, 4th Michigan Volunteers. Grant's plan echoes that of General Joseph Hooker's a year earlier. The Union Army is to cross the Rappahannock and Rapidan rivers northwest of the town of Fredericksburg, bypassing its strong defenses in an attempt to outflank the Confederates and make a drive on Richmond. While doing this, however, Grant must first pass through a 70-square-mile area of dense forest known by the locals as the Wilderness. It was in the Wilderness where Lee defeated General Hooker exactly a year earlier, and Grant was determined not to be caught in the woods. He would march his army as fast as he could and emerge on the other side of the Wilderness well behind the Confederate lines so that he could place his army between Lee and Richmond, forcing what he hoped would be the decisive engagement. The Army of the Potomac broke camp on May 4th and crossed the Rapidan River later that day. That same day, General Lee began moving his army, spread out throughout the surrounding region, towards the wilderness. Lee was determined not to let Grant pass through without a fight. Before dawn on May 5th, the men of the 4th Michigan are awoken from their brief sleep by the sound of reveille. Today, there is no time to eat breakfast. They simply grab their gear, some hardtack for the road, and get in line. The 4th is part of General Governor K. Warren's 5th Corps. Grant has learned of Lee's presence in the area and has ordered the 5th Corps to advance up the Orange Turnpike towards where Grant believes the Confederates are waiting for him. After advancing little more than a mile, the Corps fans out into the surrounding woods and forms a battle line. The 4th Michigan, with around 20 Hillsdalians in tow, takes its position in the center of the line, advancing directly up the turnpike. The 4th continues its march, after forming into battle line, through the woods on either side of the road. Visibility in the woods is almost non-existent, and men can barely see ten feet in front of them. After advancing about a half mile, the 4th stumbles out of the brush and into a clearing. Saunders Field, as it is known, stretches 650 yards from east to west and 450 yards from north to south. The Orange Turnpike transits the field from east to west through the center. From where the 4th stands, the clearing gradually slopes upward to a ridge on the western side, where they see Confederate troops constructing earthworks. Their objective is clear. Drive the Confederates from the ridge. What Grant thought was an isolated Confederate force had in fact 
turned out to be an entire Confederate infantry corps under the command of General Richard Ewell. Just as the 4th Michigan and the rest of the 5th Corps are about to begin their attack, however, they are ordered by General Warren to go back into the woods and await reinforcements. General Warren, seeing that the Confederate force opposing him is around the same size as, if not larger than his own, has decided to wait until the 6th Corps, under General Sedgwick, arrives in the field to begin his attack. However, the 6th Corps is still a few miles away from the field, and it will take a few hours before they arrive. So, for now, the 4th lies in the shade of the trees, awaiting the bugle's call. Meanwhile, about a mile to the south, along the Orange Plank Road, an adjacent road running parallel to the turnpike and connected to it by the Brock Road, another, bloodier encounter, is beginning. Early in the morning, Union cavalry patrols detect a large Confederate force moving along the road. Meade dispatches a detachment of cavalry to watch the road while reinforcements from both the 6th Corps and the 2nd Corps, under General Winfield Scott Hancock, are brought up to defend the road. The Confederate force is commanded by General A.P. Hill, and their goal is to advance up the Orange Plank Road to the Brock Road and cut off Hancock from the rest of the Union Army. At the same time as Warren's V Corps are entering Saunders Field in the north, advanced elements of A.P. Hill's Corps clash with Union cavalry on the road to the south. The cavalry, dismounted and using repeating rifles, put up a brief but fierce resistance, slowing down the Confederate column. A.P. Hill's men break through, however, and continue their attack toward the Brock Road. Unlike the Orange Turnpike, the Orange Plank Road has no clearings along its length, and Hill's men slog through the dense brush on either side of the road. After advancing another half mile through the woods, the Confederates encounter yet more Union troops. This time, it's a division of the 6th Corps, under the command of General George Getty. Getty's troops stand still in the woods, listening to the clanging of canteens and the crunching of dead leaves as the Confederates of General Henry Heath's division advance towards them. Neither side can see the other until they are practically on top of each other. The Union troops open fire first, firing point-blank into the brush at a line of greycoats they can barely see through the green. The rebels respond in kind, and soon the woods are filled with the sound of rifles, cannons, and ordnance. Soon, Union troops begin advancing and closing the distance. Heath's men fight valiantly, but the weight of Union assault is too much for his understrength division. Soon, Heath's command begins a fighting withdrawal back down the Orange Plank Road. Union troops hot on their heels. The Union troops drive Heath's division back a half mile before another Confederate division under the command of General Cadmus Wilcox arrives. Wilcox's men plug the gaps in Heath's line and stop the Union advance in its tracks. By now, though, it's around 1 p.m., and some of the men can now hear cannons firing to their north. The battle for Saunders Field has begun. By 1 p.m., Warren's V Corps has been waiting for over six hours, and Sedgwick's VI Corps is still a couple of hours marching away. Generals Meade and Grant, in their headquarters a mile behind Warren's line, are fed up with the delay and order Warren to attack without Sedgwick's help. Warren, reluctantly, orders his men forward. The 4th Michigan leads the assault directly up the center of the field. The Confederate earthworks soon disappear behind a wall of smoke as bullets whiz past the Michiganders. Shells explode overhead, in front, and behind. The air is filled almost to capacity with the sounds of war. Colonel Lombard, the 4th's commander, leads his regiment from the front. Sword drawn, he runs ahead of the line beckoning his troops to follow him through the hellfire. 
As the regiment advances closer and closer to the Confederate works, men begin to go down left and right. Soon, the regiment is within 100 yards of the works and begins returning fire. In the noise, chaos, and confusion of battle, every man in the regiment operates on pure instinct. Load, fire, reload. A kind of tunnel vision takes hold where all you can see is what you're shooting at, and you soon lose sight of the situation around you. Soon, the regiment is on the move again, advancing yet further towards the earthworks. Then, at the critical moment, as the fourth are within a hundred yards of the Confederate line, Colonel Lombard is hit by a Confederate round and mortally wounded. With the regiment's head cut off, lower echelon officers begin to try and stabilize the situation, but being so close to the enemy line and suffering withering fire, many of the regiment's officers are killed trying to salvage the situation. While the 4th Michigan struggles to make its way up the ridge on Saunders Field, to the left, Union troops of General Wadsworth's division are making better progress. Wadsworth's men are struggling through the thick brush in the woods south of Saunders Field in an attempt to flank the Confederates when they run headlong into the continuation of the Confederate battle line. The brush works both ways, however, as Wadsworth's men are able to get much closer to the Confederates without coming under the same withering fire that the 4th Michigan and the rest of the men in Saunders Field have had to contend with. The two sides fire point-blank into each other before the Union troops storm across the few yards separating them from the earthworks. The two sides begin a fierce melee as bayonets climb together, men unload rifles into opponents only inches away from their muzzles, and artillery shells explode in the two canopy overhead. After a few minutes, Wadsworth's men gain the upper hand and drive the Confederates from their trenches, driving the rebels into the woods before them. General Ewell receives word of the breakthrough and begins searching for reinforcements to plug the gap in his line. He finds them in the form of Brigadier General John Gordon's Georgia Brigade. Ewell rides over to Gordon and shouts, General Gordon, the fate of the day depends on you, sir. Then Gordon, shouting to make sure his men can hear, responds, These men will save it, sir. Gordon promptly forms his men into battle line and begins advancing into the woods south of the Orange Turnpike. His men advance about 400 yards before encountering the Union's famed Iron Brigade, with regiments hailing from Michigan, Wisconsin, and Indiana, including some Hillsdalians. The two forces clash, but the weight of the Georgian attack is enough to force even the Iron Brigade, famed for its composure under fire, flying back into the woods from whence they came. The Georgians, upon retaking the Confederate trenches, split into two groups. Half of the brigade turns north towards Saunders Field, the other half turns south to clear out the remaining Union troops that had broken through. The Georgians sweep up the line of earthworks, driving away all the Union troops before them. Seeing the desperate situation, General Wadsworth himself rides to the front to try and keep his men in the fight, but cannot rally the men. With the Georgians coming upon them like a tidal wave, Wadsworth's division begins retreating back to the east towards their original positions. Meanwhile, in Saunders Field, the 4th Michigan are caught completely by surprise when from the woods on their left, thousands of Gordon's Georgians appear, taking fire from two sides, suffering dozens of casualties, with their leader mortally wounded and many of their company commanders killed or wounded, the 4th Michigan also begins retreating back across Saunders Field towards the woods where they had begun the attack just a couple hours prior. At around this time, 4 p.m., General Sedgwick's 6th Corps arrives on the field and takes position on General Warren's right flank. Sedgwick's men launch a desperate attack late in the afternoon to try and strike the finishing blow on General Ewell's battered corps. But, after making some initial gains, Sedgwick's men are halted by the onset of darkness. In the south, along the Orange Plank Road, the 2nd Corps under General Hancock meets a similar fate. 
struck by a division of reinforcements late in the afternoon, Hancock's men retreat back to their starting positions along the Brock Road and entrench for the night. The first day of the Battle of the Wilderness is at an end. That night, as the two armies made camp and got some rest, they left many of the dead and wounded behind in the woods. Over the course of the day, many small brush fires had flared up, and a number of the wounded that were too badly hurt to walk or crawl out of harm's way burned to death in the fire. Some of the wounded, however, had taken precautions against this fate. According to Private Frank Wilkeson, I saw many wounded soldiers in the wilderness who hung on to their rifles and whose intentions were clearly stamped on their pallid faces. I saw one man, both of whose legs were broken, lying on the ground with his cocked rifle by his side, his ramrod in his hand, and his eyes set on the front. I knew he meant to kill himself in case of fire. I knew it as surely as though I could read his thoughts. That night, the commanders of both armies planned for the next day's action. General Lee conferred with Generals Ewell and Hill and decided to take a defensive posture. They would dig in and hold their positions until General Longstreet could bring his first corps into the fight and turn the tide. Meanwhile, Generals Grant and Meade resolved to resume their offensive at the crack of dawn. Even as they were speaking shortly after sundown on the night of the 5th of May, General Ambrose Burnside's 9th Corps was arriving on the field, taking up positions in the woods between Hancock and Warren. With the Union Army now consisting of four corps compared to the Confederates' two, the fate of the next day's fighting lay in the hands of General James Longstreet. Could the Union break through the Confederate line before Longstreet arrives, or will Longstreet arrive in time to save Lee? Before dawn on May 6th, Union troops of General Hancock's 2nd Corps sit in their earthworks silently, listening attentively for the signal from their commanders to begin the assault. At exactly 5 a.m., Hancock's Corps quietly leaves their trenches and marches into the woods in front of them. The Confederates are less than a mile away, so the Union troops avoid making any loud noises as they approach in order to keep the element of surprise. From their positions on the Brock Road, they advance about 700 yards before encountering the Confederate line. Unfortunately for those Union troops in front, the Confederates are not caught by surprise. Instead, the whole of A.P. Hill's Third Corps is ready in their trenches with their guns loaded and facing the advancing Union troops. The Confederates unleash a devastating volley of point-blank range, the officers holding off on ordering the volley until they hear Union troops getting quite close. In the darkness, Hill's troops aim by intuition, but the volley slams into Hancock's troops, who suffer heavy casualties. Hancock's troops, most of whom are veterans of many battles, do not falter, and instead sprint the last few dozen yards to the Confederate line. Minutes of fierce hand-to-hand -hand combat follow, and Hancock's men soon gain the upper hand. Within minutes, the Confederate line is buckling under the pressure of Hancock's Corps, and soon they begin to retreat back up the Orange Plank Road towards Lee's headquarters at the Widow Tap Farm. It is 5.45 a.m. Meanwhile, to the north, the 5th and 6th Corps, under Generals Warren and Sedgwick, have also begun their attack. Unlike Hill's men, though, Ewell's men, in the north, have thoroughly dug in, and wave after wave of Union troops fail to breach Ewell's line. Having begun at around 4.45 a.m., the attacks have already reached a stalemate by 5.45. Confederate troops also launch counterattacks, but they too are halted by Union troops firing from behind earthworks of their own. In the center, the 9th Corps under Ambrose Burnside is making better progress, advancing through half a mile of woods before encountering Confederate troops near the tuning farm at around 6 a.m. The fighting is fierce, and it looks for a while that Burnside's men will also break through the Confederate line. Then, Lee, a miracle-prone man, receives yet another one. 
Back at the Widow Tap Farm, General Lee is personally directing the battle, trying to get the fleeing troops of AP Hill's Corps back into the fight. A battery of Confederate artillery fires canister shots blindly into the woods, hoping beyond hope to slow down the Union force. Then, at 6 a.m., on the western edge of the clearing, a brigade of Texans emerges. It's John B. Gregg's brigade, the vanguard of Longstreet's Corps. They had woken up not long after midnight in order to arrive as soon as they could. Lee rides over intent on personally leading them into the fight, but the Texans, seeing the burning woods and fleeing Confederate troops on the other side of the field, refuse to march. They begin to shout at Lee. Lay to the rear! Lay to the rear! Lee tries in vain to convince them to allow him to lead them, but an officer grabs the reins of his horse traveler and personally escorts the general behind the brigade. With General Lee safely behind them, the Texans form into battle line and charge across the field towards the eastern edge, where, at that very moment, Union troops are just beginning to emerge from the tree line. Hancock's troops, caught off guard by the sudden rush of fresh Confederate troops, fall back into the woods. General Longstreet himself arrives on the scene with yet more men behind him minutes later. Like a fine lady at a party, Longstreet was often late in his arrival at the ball, but he always made a sensation and that of delight when he got in with the grand old first corps sweeping behind him as his train. Private William Dane, Richmond Howitzers. Longstreet deploys two of his three divisions, under Generals Anderson and Kershaw, opposite Hancock's corps to halt the Union advance, while he deploys four brigades, under Brigadier General Mahone, far to the right in order to flank the Union line. Longstreet's chief engineer, Lieutenant Colonel Sorrell, finds an unfinished railroad cut to the southeast of Hancock's corps. It provides an excellent path for Mahone's flanking attack. Sorrel leads the division through the brush until they reach the unfinished railroad cut, where they turn and head east, flanking the Union Army. After marching a few hundred yards along the cut, they form into battle line and turn north, heading back into the forest. All the while, Mahone's men hear the booming cannon and crackling rifles around the Widow Tap farm. Twenty minutes of bushwhacking later, Mahone's men find themselves squarely on the flank of the Union Army. At 11 a.m., they attack and unleash a volley and charge at the rear lines of Hancock's Corps. The Union troops are caught completely by surprise and turn to face the new threat, but the Confederates, having gotten quite close because of the cover, close the distance rapidly and slam into the Union line. The Union line begins to waver, and soon entire Union brigades begin retreating northward en masse towards the Orange Plank Road. Hancock would later say that Longstreet's men rolled his corps up like a wet blanket, and he was right. With Mahone's division bearing down on them on their left, and Longstreet resuming his attack to their front, even the experienced Second Corps begins to waver. General Wadsworth, whose division has been moved from Saunders Field overnight to support Hancock, is soon overwhelmed on the Union right as well. Wadsworth once again attempts to personally rally his command, but a stray Confederate bullet hits him, and he falls from his horse mortally wounded. Not long after, Hancock's entire corps is in a headlong route towards their earthworks along the Brock Road. Longstreet rides ahead along the Orange Plank Road to observe the battle. A group of Mahone's men, returning from their successful counterattack, spot Longstreet and his retinue and mistake them for Union cavalry. In an incident eerily resembling that which befell General Stonewall Jackson a few miles away a year earlier, Mahone's men open fire, hitting Longstreet in the neck and wounding him, as well as killing one of his brigade commanders. Though Longstreet would eventually recover from this wound, he was now out of the fight. The Confederates pressed the attack, but without their corps commander, the attacks fall upon the Union line uncoordinated and piecemeal. Hancock's men, now behind the protection of their earthworks, unleash devastating volleys into the Confederates. Enos S. Stedman, a Hillsdale student and member of the 26th Michigan Infantry, helps his regiment repel repeated Confederate attacks on Hancock's extreme left flank. While Kershaw's and Mahone's divisions press east, attacking the Brock Road, 
General Anderson's division turns north and advances toward the left flank of Ambrose Burnside's 9th Corps, guarding the Union Center. Burnside's men, having been alerted to the crisis on their left by all the noise and the spattering of reports from Hancock, have already turned their line to face the new threat. But, without earthworks facing southward, Burnside is faced with any general's worst nightmare, a fair fight. Anderson's men slam into Burnside's line. The two sides exchange volleys at point-blank range. Hundreds are killed or wounded in seconds. The fighting rages back and forth along the line. One moment, Anderson's men are attacking. Another, Burnside's men launch a fierce counterattack. Captain Lafayette Young and Private Theodore Meade of the 27th Michigan Infantry are in the thick of the fighting on Burnside's right flank. During one of their many counterattacks, Captain Young leads his men forward through the brush. They come upon a Confederate line, and before he can shout the order to open fire, he is hit by a Confederate round. He would die of his wounds 11 days later in a Union hospital. His name forever memorialized on Hillsdale College's Civil War Monument. A regiment in the same brigade, the 2nd Michigan, is commanded by Hillsdalian William Humphrey. Humphrey's regiment also partakes in the back-and-forth swing in combat. From shortly after noon until dusk, the fighting hangs in the balance, but Humphrey and his men hold firm. The fighting ends with a stalemate. The same is true on the Brock Road, where Hancock's men successfully repel attack after attack. By nightfall, there too the fighting ends in a stalemate. This is not so in the north, however, where fighting is very much not in a stalemate. General John Gordon, not satisfied with his army-saving heroics the day prior, proposes to General Ewell a daring plan. Gordon, with a relatively small force, will flank Sedgwick's 6th Corps on the extreme Union right and attempt to drive back his forces in a similar fashion to what Mahone had done on the Union left. Ewell approves the plan, and at 7 p.m., Gordon's brigade, along with two others, attack the Union line. Once again, Union troops are caught completely by surprise as the rebel yell mixed with gunfire fills the woods on Sedgwick's right. Sedgwick, however, quickly realizes what is happening and quickly redeploys his corps. The units on the 6th Corps' right flank fight a stalling action while Sedgwick redeploys the rest of his corps to face the emerging threat. Sedgwick, an experienced commander, realizes all he has to do is hold off Gordon until sunset, when the darkness will halt his progress. The men of the 6th Corps hold valiantly, wasting one and a half hours of precious daylight before sunset finally halts Gordon's advance. The next day, May 7th, there is no fighting. Both sides retrieve their dead and wounded and reinforce their defenses. Grant and Meade, meanwhile, discuss their next course of action. By now, Grant knows that further fighting in the wilderness is futile and simply a waste of time. However, at the same time, he does not want to make the same mistake his predecessors did and retreat back across the Rappahannock River. The Union troops, when they hear the orders to pack up and prepare for march, think that once again they shall be forced to leave the field in shame and cross back over the Rappahannock River with nothing to show for it except thousands of dead and wounded comrades. But, when they turn southeast along the Brock Road, many are delightfully surprised. This is not a retreat, this is an advance. Grant has, instead of retreating, decided to march southeast along the Brock Road towards his next objective on the road to Richmond, the small town and crossroads of Spotsylvania Courthouse. That was the last full measure with Carter McNish. Join us in two weeks when we'll cover the Battle for Spotsylvania Courthouse and the Battle for the Bloody Angle, which would become known later as Hell's Half Acre.